Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Newly Meds podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode. Uh, I think we've got some really interesting topics to review today and something that uh, ventures into a little bit more of the uh, critical care realm of the ground-based to 911 EMS setting. Um, I know a lot of the listeners are paramedics or EMTs that are ground-based. We're not talking about our um, critical care flight friends or even our critical care ground friends here um, because, as you know, you're familiar with a lot of these concepts, but this episode really applies to anybody. But today we're going to be talking about three specific vasopressors, um, really inopressors. We're going to be talking about norepinephrine, epinephrine, and dopamine. And we're going to be talking about when we can use them, when we should use them, and some differences between them. And in order to really talk about that, we need to have a fairly deep understanding of the pathophysiology of these medications and the receptors that they uh, either inhibit or stimulate and how they work in the body, where they are in the body, and have a little bit of an understanding about shock as well. Um, and really more than a little bit, right? We want to know a lot about how shock is affecting uh, our pathophysiology in the body and how we can address it and manage it. One really unique thing about today's episode is it is going to be pretty patho-heavy, but the topic that we're covering is something that we don't run into in the ground-based 911 setting super often. Really, it's in less than 5% of our patients. And really, in that 5% of patient demographic, we're talking about the most critical and most crucial patient demographic that we are going to be intervening on. A lot of these patients are as sick as we're going to get, right? They are experiencing uh, some form of shock, some form of cardiovascular and hemodynamic collapse that is uh, sort of triggering us to think about how we're going to intervene. Are we going to use some sort of vasopressor, um, like the three aforementioned that I talked about, an epi, a norepi, or a dopamine, to better manage these patients. And so when we talk about considering how to manage these patients, like I said earlier, we really need to understand the pathophysiology behind it. So we're going to jump into that right off the bat here. So before we talk about shock, it's really important to understand a few things um, and, and really more than a few, but today we're going to be talking about a few key concepts that it's incredibly important to understand. And those key concepts, especially when we talk about our uh, dopamine, epi, and norepi, are going to be uh, receptor sites, systemic vascular resistance, and our cardiac output and our stroke volume. And so the first thing that I want to start with here is talking about our receptors. And so when we think about receptors in the body, and when we think about the goals that we're trying to achieve when we give someone a vasopressor, we're typically talking about an attempt to stimulate the sympathetic nervous system, our fight or flight nervous system. Because when we do that, we're going to get an increase in our blood pressure. We're going to get a little bit of relaxation in our muscles of the respiratory system. We're going to get some bronchodilation with that. And we really need to understand why that is. So when we think about it, we have four receptor sites 
that I want to talk about. And they're all going to follow, two of them are going to fall into the same name. So we have an alpha-1 and an alpha-2 receptor site. And we have our beta-1 and our beta-2 receptor sites. So when I think about alpha-1 and beta-1, I'm thinking about stimulating that sympathetic nervous system. And when I think about beta-2 and alpha-2, we're thinking about inhibiting some counterfunction of that nervous system. And typically, that's when we're talking about relaxing some sort of smooth muscle, um, getting some bronchodilation. And we can really conceptualize that when we think about a medication like albuterol, which is a very um, aggressive beta-2 agonist. And when we give that, we're getting a lot of bronchodilation, we're getting some smooth muscle relaxation. um, Because when we think about the beta-2 receptor, that's located in all of our relevant smooth muscle glands. And when I say relevant, I mean it's located in almost every organ and gland that has to do with the sympathetic nervous system. And so then when we talk about alpha-2, we're talking about a receptor that is in the presynaptic terminals, where we're thinking more on the neuro side of the chain of pathways here. And we're talking about the neurons in our sympathetic nervous system. So these receptors here are all going to have to do with our sympathetic nervous system. So when I think about alpha-1, very similarly to beta-2, I'm thinking that these receptors are in all of our smooth muscle organs that are relevant to our sympathetic nervous system. So when we're thinking about alpha-1, typically uh, we're going to be thinking about our peripheral blood vessels um, and a lot of those organs that have to do with uh, our sympathetic nervous system. And we're typically thinking of vasoconstriction of those blood vessels. So when I'm thinking of alpha-1, I think venous and arterial. So the cool thing about beta-1 is that it's located in the heart, in the myocardium, and also in our kidneys, in the juxtaglomerular cells. And when we think about the kidneys and how we're going to affect uh, blood pressure in that sense, we often are thinking about that renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. And that's another really important concept to nail when we're thinking about um, using pressors, especially in uh, sepsis, when we think about something that is having a lot of stimulation or not much stimulation at all in the kidneys. But we really need to understand that system and how it affects uh, our cardiac output and our systemic vascular resistance, which is the next term that I want to get into. And it's also sort of going to think about this in the sense of sepsis. But we're going to be talking about systemic vascular resistance. And so when we think about this concept, it's really important to understand how it functions. And then we're going to sort of tie all of this together, um, talk about shock, and then we'll finally start talking about uh, the pressors um, and when we would use them in our patient. But when we think about systemic vascular resistance, um, we have a little bit of a formula here and that's why it is so important to understand but systemic vascular resistance is going to be the resistance of blood on our vessel wall so when we think about it if our vessels dilate and they open up 
our MAP is going to decrease, right? We think vasodilation and we think a decrease in blood pressure. So that makes sense. So when we think about someone in septic shock, they have a lot of vessel dilation. Um, They have this real huge decrease in their systemic vascular resistance. And so when we look to manage our patients in sepsis, and when we think about surviving sepsis, um, which is a great resource to use when, we, when we're talking about how to manage our septic patients better, we really need to focus on improving their SVR. And that's important because when we think about our blood pressure, and more importantly, when we think about our mean arterial pressure or our MAP, which is starting to become very prevalent when we're talking about managing our patients who are in forms of hemodynamic collapse, our MAP is simply our cardiac output in addition to our systemic vascular resistance. That equals our MAP. So if we can improve one or the other or both, then obviously we're going to have an increase in our MAP, which would mean an increase in our blood pressure. And so then when we think about our cardiac output, we know that it's our heart rate and our stroke volume. So how does this sort of all tie in? How does this work when we think about managing our patients that are in hemodynamic collapse? So now that we have a little bit more of an understanding on uh, our systemic vascular resistance, our cardiac output, we sort of revisited a few of those terms. And we went pretty in depth here talking about where the receptor sites are located and sort of how we can stimulate them and what they're stimulating. But we didn't get as in depth as I want to. So now we're going to sort of tie all of these concepts together and we're going to relate it in a form of shock and then we're going to go from there and we're going to talk about our pressors and then we're going to close out today's episode as we always do with a little bit of clinical insight um, and some of my advice starting out um, some things that obviously I wish I knew but when we talk about our alpha receptors and our beta receptors which we already did we did not hit on the effects that we're trying to have and if you look at any good research or information on Uh, vasopressors, they all are going to have a chart with them. And all of these charts are going to have a little diagram of different things, but they're all going to have very similar uh, pieces of information. And when we look at these charts, you're going to see the receptor that they act on. You're going to see a bunch of arrows either pointing up or down or no arrows at all if they don't have any effect. And then you're going to see the effect on cardiac output and systemic vascular resistance and MAP um, and a, a few different things. Depending how in-depth we want to look at these pressors is going to depend on uh, really how in-depth these charts are going to be. So we can see some really basic charts and we can see some really advanced charts about how um, kidney function is affected and some different things there. And so there's some really good literature out there that I'll link in my show notes that you can uh, check out on your own. But when we think about how our receptors are going to affect the cells, um, we're going to start to group these receptors together. So as I did before, we're going to group together our our one receptors, our alpha ones and our beta ones. And like I said, we're going to get some stimulation of some effect there. So when I think of our alpha ones, like I said earlier, we're going to get a lot of vasoconstriction in our peripheral vasculature. So uh, we're going to get arterial and venous vasoconstriction. And so when we do that, we're going to increase our peripheral resistance. We're going to increase our blood pressure. And alpha-1, when we think of adrenergic receptor function, 
because these are all of our adrenergic receptors, our alphas and our betas, we're going to start talking about norepinephrine and epinephrine, which are released when we have that sympathetic response. And our alpha ones are going to be more receptive. The receptors are going to bind better with norepinephrine than they would with epinephrine. And then when we think about our beta ones, we're going to increase our heart rate. We're going to increase our myocardial contractility. We're going to increase that renin. So again, we're talking about uh, that renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system in the kidneys. And when we sort of conceptualize that, it makes sense, right? Because our beta ones, as we already talked about, is in that myocardium, and it's also in the cells in our kidneys. And so when we think about alpha-1 and beta-1, that would seem to make a lot of sense conceptually. And the only major difference there is that our beta-1s are going to be more receptive or about the same as norepinephrine, but we know that our alpha-1s are very receptive to norepinephrine. So then when we start to think about our alpha-2s, we're going to dive into a little bit of a different response. So when we're thinking about alpha-2 and beta-2, we have a little bit of difference than our alpha-1s and our beta-1s. So like I said, our alpha-1s are going to have a little bit stronger binding with norepinephrine. Our beta-1s, they're actually about the same, um, but some literature out there might say epi binds a little bit better to them. But we're stimulating that sympathetic response. So as I talked about earlier, now we have to have some sort of opposite effect. And that comes when we start to uh, act on our alpha-2 and our beta-2. So when we act on alpha-2, we're going to inhibit our norepinephrine release, the release of acetylcholine, and the release of insulin. And when we stimulate beta-2, we're going to get some vasodilation, some decrease in our peripheral resistance, some bronchodilation, uh, glucagon release, and we're going to relax that smooth muscle in the uterine. And so when we think about this, why is that? Well, we talked about earlier how beta-2 agonists like albuterol stimulate that bronchodilation. And when we give norepinephrine or epinephrine, we're acting on those alpha-1 and beta-1s. And this will all sort of make sense when we start to talk about our pressors. But it's important to remember here that when we are giving something that acts on certain receptor sites, we have to understand how those receptor sites work because we're going to try and achieve a goal when we give our presser and we want to know the best way to get our intended result. And so we talked about, you know, norepinephrine being better on the alpha one and about the same on beta one, but epinephrine on alpha two is going to be better than norepinephrine. And when we think about beta two, epinephrine is really going to be a lot better than norepinephrine. And we would say that that makes a lot of sense because at a high dose of epinephrine, we get a lot of alpha stimulation, but we're also getting that beta stimulation. And so when we think about someone who's having an allergic reaction and you give them 0.3 milligrams IM epi, which is 300 micrograms, which is a pretty high dose of epinephrine, especially when we start talking about the pressor realm of epinephrine, which is normally 
um, five to 20 micrograms of epinephrine. Um, when we start thinking about push dose, it is a pretty high dose, but we're going to get a lot of that bronchodilation. We're going to get an improvement in our uh, blood pressure because you get some alpha one stimulation. You're going to get some vasoconstriction peripherally. Um, you're going to get that increase of the blood pressure, but you're also going to decrease that uh, peripheral resistance and you're going to uh, get that bronchodilation that we need to help those patients that are experiencing that allergic reaction breathe. Um, it's also going to help because it's going to counteract the mast cells. So it's really working in a deep pathophysiological way there, but it's, it's easy to conceptualize um, when we think about our receptors, how different things work and how they work with each other to achieve a goal. And so the last thing that I want to leave you with on this um, pathos segment of the episode is a little bit of a reminder of our adrenergic receptors. So let's remember that we've got these receptors in our body, and when we give them catecholamine, it stimulates these receptors in the organs of our sympathetic nervous system to trigger that fight-or-flight response. So let's remember that catecholamines stimulate adrenergic receptors. And we will move on from that. I know we did a deep dive into these receptors, what they do, how they affect the body. So now I want to pivot and talk about um, shock. And it's all going to come together here when we think about our pressors in just a few short minutes. So when we think about shock, we are typically thinking about um, some different types of shock. And we, if we think back to EMT and paramedic school, we think about maybe neurogenic or distributive, which is our anaphylaxis and our sepsis, um, or, you know, hemorrhagic or what we would call like hypovolemic shock or cardiogenic shock. So there's some different types of shock. And there's a few things that I want to think about um, when we're talking shock. And so we could dive deeper into the pathophysiology of shock and um, we'll do that in another episode because we did a deep dive into the patho of our receptor uh, binding today. But when I think about shock in real simple terms, I'm thinking about a basic principle that supply is not equaling demand. So when we don't have supply and demand um, working with each other, they, they're not equal, our bodies are going to go into this state of shock. And so in order to correct it, it's going to sound really simple. We either need to fix the supply, so get more supply and give it to our body, or reduce the demand. E easy enough, right? Not quite. So when we think about supply in the human body, there's four things that I think about, and I think about them in this order. So we immediately want to address our oxygenation, and when we address that, or if it's not needed to be addressed, we think about our next issue, which is a pathologic heart rate or simply a non-compensatory heart rate. So someone's heart rate is 140 and they're hypotensive and they're showing signs of infection. That's a heart rate that's compensatory. But someone whose heart rate is 38 or 220, that is probably a, and more often than not, not a compensatory heart rate, they're in some sort of tachyarrhythmia or bradyarrhythmia. And the only reason I say more often than not is because we should not be speaking in definites, especially in medicine. And it's, you know, 
never 100% of the time, every time. But we want to make sure that we're addressing um, non-compensatory heart rates, and that will correct uh, that issue with supply. The next issue that we're going to be thinking about is our hemoglobin, and we can think about that in the pre-hospital 911 setting because we're not drawing uh, lab values, but are we highly suspicious of internal bleeding? And obviously, if we have some external hemorrhaging, we need to control that, and we need to know that these patients have to get to definitive care quickly because they're going to need blood. Um, We have to restore that blood volume in the patient. And then the last thing that I want to address in shock for our supply would be our stroke volume, which we talked about a little bit earlier. And it's going to come back to being really important because when we think about stroke volume, we think about adding it with our heart rate and it's going to get our cardiac output. So supply simply is our arterial oxygenation, our hemoglobin, and then our cardiac output, which is our heart rate. And we're thinking about a pathologic heart rate and our stroke volume. So we want to make sure that we're addressing those supply issues when we are addressing shock in our patients. And when we go on here shortly to talk about pressors, it's really important because when we're giving pressors, our patients are normally um, in some form of decompensated shock, right? They're hypotensive, they're crashing, they're in extremis. So the last bit of terminology I want to talk about before we jump into looking at a few different cases are going to be three terms, um, really four, but the three true terminologies I want us to remember is that chronotropy is our heart rate. So if we are going to uh, give some chronotropic effect, we're going to do something to our heart rate. If we're going to do a dromotropic effect, we're talking about conduction and conduction through the AV node of the heart. And when we're thinking about Uh, an inotropic effect, we're talking about the contraction and the squeeze of our heart. So let's keep those three terms in mind. Let's keep our receptors in mind that we talked about earlier. And let's start talking about shock and really using pressors in the pre-hospital setting. So when I think about shock, I think about something that's really easy to obtain right there at bedside that we should be doing um, every single time on our patients that are incredibly sick Um, that are experiencing shock, and especially in some sort of uh, hemorrhage or um, hemodynamic collapse setting. But it is something that is incredibly simple to obtain and that I think a lot of providers forget to grab it. um, It's definitely not something that is going to most likely change our treatment plan a ton, but it's a really good diagnostic to know, and it doesn't take long to do, but it's called the shock index. And we're going to get our shock index by taking our heart rate and dividing it by our systolic blood pressure. And I start to get really concerned when that number is anything over one. The normal range would be 0.5 to 0.7. But when we have a shock index of, let's say, 1.3, 1.4, really anything greater than that, we definitely have a problem that we're going to need to be addressing incredibly fast. Our patients are really sick and they're going to need the best care that we can give them. And so now we're going to start talking into um, how we can address and manage these patients. And the one key concept that I want to start out with is the arguably the most important teaching that I do um, and that I tell all of the new providers that I've trained and talked to Um, And something that I never was taught in school, but something that I I wish I was, 
Uh, and it sort of seems a little bit innate, but the more I talk to people about it, the more I realize that maybe they're not practicing that way. But I sort of mentioned it earlier, but we want to think about a goal that we have in our patient. And this is not just for shock or managing a blood pressure, but for any intervention that we do, we are trying to achieve a certain goal in our patient. And sometimes we don't achieve that goal. Sometimes we get an opposite effect, but we have to know what goal we're trying to achieve. And then we create our treatment plan based off of how we're going to achieve that goal. So to put it really simply, right, when we think about someone who's having just a very mild asthma attack, we give them their inhaler or we assist them with the use of their inhaler, which is an albuterol inhaler. The goal would be to bronchodilate that patient so that they have less wheezing and it's easier for them to get air in with their inhalation and it's easier for them to get air out with their exhalation because they have a dilation of the bronchioles. And when we think about it, talking about our receptors, which we did earlier, we're thinking about a beta-2 agonist. So we're going to get all of that smooth muscle relaxation, that bronchodilation when we use that albuterol. So that would be the goal that we're trying to achieve when we give someone albuterol that has a, a mild asthma attack. So I want us to remember that as we're talking about these pressors and the goals that we're trying to achieve, because we are typically trying to achieve an improvement in the map and the perfusion of these patients' organs. And so how are we going to do that? What is the most appropriate way to do that? Because often we can use really any of these, and I would say that's really bad practice, that sort of stings coming out, right? But you could use any of these pressors to try and improve that patient's map, but they might not work and they might have some really adverse effects. So it's really important to understand that concept, that we need to know the goal that we're trying to achieve and then let's achieve it in the most appropriate way. So with that being said, let's start talking about pressors. It's what we came here to talk about, right? We're 25, 26 minutes into our podcast right now, and we're finally starting to talk about pressors. So let's just jump into that. All right. So now we're going to be talking about our pressors. And as we said before, we're typically using our pressure pressors that are in uh, patient demographics that have some form of restriction of blood flow. They have a decrease in their blood pressure. And we're thinking about, as I talked about earlier, how can we achieve uh, fixing that? How what, what goal do we want to do? And we want to fix their blood pressure. How can I improve that problem? And so when you think about addressing problems, um, we think about what issue is going on. And so we can do a whole other episode on shock, but at a very basic level, do we have an issue with vascular tone, pump function, or do we have a multifactorial problem? So do we have um, a tone decrease, a, a cardiac function issue? Do we have a decrease um, in our SVR? Um, and typically, our patients are experiencing some form of both. And so when we think about that, like we would think about uh, anaphylaxis, where we have a pump and a tone problem. We would think about uh, septic shock, where, again, we have a, a cardiac pump 
and a vascular tone problem. And then when we think about strictly vascular tone, we would think of our neurogenic shock where, where they lose their vascular tone um, or cardiogenic shock where we have uh, an issue with pump function or hypotension um, due to hemorrhagic shock. Our heart is failing to pump, um, and so we need to address that. And so when we think about addressing that, we're going to be talking about how we can use pressors to address these problems because um, when we think about it, we should have already given a fluid challenge. Um, These patients are refractory, hypotensive to fluid challenges, and we should be, especially in the pre-hospital 911 setting, we should be intervening quickly. Um, you know, we don't want to be sitting around waiting to give two, three liters of fluid uh, to these patients. If they are not receptive uh, to those initial fluid challenges, we, we really need to start considering managing these patients' um, issue more aggressively. And so how can we go about managing these patients? So... When we think about managing of it, we already talked about how we will find a goal and achieve that goal. So typically, right, if we're thinking about someone that has a pump function, we need to um, have a ton of beta stimulation. So dobutamine is really good for that. If someone has a loss of vascular tone, um, we want to think about using a presser that would be titrated toward um, exclusively uh alpha adrenergic receptors. So we think about phenylephrine or vasopressin, even though vasopressin is a V1, V2 receptor, um, but they have no direct impact on our pump function. So when we lose our tone, that's what we would think about. We're not really going to see vasopressin on the ground. Uh, It's not something that should be given through a peripheral IV, so we're not going to talk about it. Um, Phenylephrine, we'll we'll probably do another episode on, but again, it's not something that we're seeing super commonly in a ground-based 911 setting. But what we are seeing really commonly are dopamine, uh, epinephrine, and norepinephrine, or levofed. And for our listeners over there in Europe, we're thinking about uh, adrenaline and noradrenaline. And so when we think about these medications, we're really thinking about how they affect on their receptor sites and the primary receptors. So dopamine at a low dose is going to have that dopa receptor site, um, but it also has beta-1 stimulation. And it's very dose dependent, right? When we use dopamine at a medium dose, four to 10 micrograms per kilogram per minute, we have some alpha stimulation and some beta stimulation. Um, And then the higher dose we get, it's very similar to epinephrine. At a higher dose, we're getting more alpha stimulation and less beta stimulation. And then when we think about epinephrine, it's really such a versatile medication, but we have alpha one, alpha two, beta one, and beta two, Uh, as primary receptor sites, and norepinephrine is the same way, but it has a little bit more of an effect on our beta-1 receptors, and it's sort of said the same with dopamine is depending on the literature that you read, um, at high doses, it's unlikely uh, to have any sort of beta-2 effect. We're going to get a lot of that alpha stimulation and beta-1 stimulation. So when we think about using a presser, um, we're going to talk about a few of the differences in these three uh, inopressors, and they're all falling into the category of sympathomimetics or catecholamines, which we, if we think back way to the beginning of this episode, we talked about um, how that catecholamine response activates those adrenergic receptor sites. Uh, 
So when and how can we use each of these? And is it appropriate to use more than one, one of them? Should I use one or the other? Let's talk about that a little bit. So when we talk about using these medications, we're going to break it down into the receptor sites that they work on and our dosaging of it. Because all of these pretty much have a range of doses, right? We think about epi um, at a low dose and a high dose and how it has different stimulation. But we're going to start with uh, norepinephrine or noradrenaline. And so when we think about the primary receptor sites, we're thinking about alpha-1 and beta-1. And so it's going to address those receptors, producing potent vasoconstriction, and that's going to increase our cardiac output. And so when we think about it, we have a huge alpha-1 target site with some beta-1 target site. So we're going to increase our heart rate and our inotropy a little bit, but not much. But we're really going to increase our systemic vascular resistance and that's going to have the most impact on increasing our blood pressure. Um, depending on how the heart reacts, it, it could have a little bit of an increase in our cardiac output, but most of the time it's going to stay the same, but we're going to have a huge increase on our SVR, and then that's going to increase our blood pressure. It's not going to have much effect on our pulmonary vascular resistance, um, and you can use this in most types of shock. And we can use this medication peripherally as long as we're monitoring those patients, right? We don't want to have them on a levofed drip um, in a, a PIV for you know days at a time. Um, we really should be getting central lines in those patients. But in the acute pre-hospital 911 setting, yes. But we really need to make sure that we have a good large bore IV site and that it's not infiltrated. So now we're going to start talking about epinephrine. And so when we think about epinephrine, it's a very versatile uh, medication. So when we use on low doses, um, we're getting a little bit more of beta stimulation. And the higher dose we get, we get more alpha stimulation. And so because of that, we are going to have uh, an increase in our cardiac output at low doses, and we're going to decrease that uh, systemic vascular resistance. And then at higher doses, we're going to increase the SVR, which is going to further increase our cardiac output. Because if we think back to the beginning of this episode, our SVR and our cardiac output equals our MAP. And so the goal we're trying to achieve in these patients is increasing their blood pressure and addressing their MAP. So we want to increase both or one or the other um, to get improved MAP. And so when we use it at our lower doses, like one microgram per, per minute or you know, 10 mics per minute if we're thinking push dose or even a little bit higher than that um, when we venture into our high-dose epinephrine, which is uh, typically um, at 100. We really want to be doing more than 100 mics a minute, um, and even with an epi drip. But we're going to get uh, an increase in our heart rate, and we're going to get some increase in our inotropy, and we're going to uh, have a little bit of an increase in our SVR, and we're going to have a huge increase in our cardiac output. And because of that, we're going to increase our blood pressure. So a lot of times we're using epinephrine when we think about it, um, and we use it quite frequently in the field, right? We're using it for our patients that are bradycardic. We might give them a little bit of push-dose epi uh, to address that. Cardiogenic shock, sepsis, anaphylaxis, cardiac arrest. Um, in pediatric patients that have croup, we're using racemic epinephrine. So it's a very versatile medication. 
as we know, it's safe to use in the peripheral vasculature. Um, we can put it through an IV. We want to be very careful with the doses that we're putting through an IV. Um, we know that we're using it through an IV in cardiac arrest. We're using it um, uh, intramuscularly in our patients with anaphylaxis. And it doesn't really have much of an effect on uh, using it IM to create tissue necrosis, right? We think about a lot of patients that have misused their EpiPen and maybe shot it into their thumb because they don't know how to use it. And we're not seeing those patients lose their thumbs because they have um, 0.3 milligrams of Epi now inside of their thumb. So it is fairly safe to use peripherally. And so the last medication that we're going to be talking about is dopamine. And so when we talk about dopamine at a low dose, we're really acting predominantly on the DOPA1 receptors, the dopamine 1 receptors, um, which is going to have some selective vasodilation. And then when we use it at a low dose, we get that beta 1 stimulation. And at higher doses, we're getting the alpha stimulation. So again, very similar to epinephrine, but also very different. But at our low doses, we're getting some beta stimulation. And as we increase our dose, we're getting more alpha stimulation. And so because of that, we're getting an increase in our SVR, which is going to increase our MAP. However, it's known that the overall alpha stimulation, the alpha adrenergic receptor stimulation, is weaker in dopamine than it is in norepinephrine. And we're sort of going to talk about that here in a little bit. So when we think about using dopamine, it's a variable dose, but when we use it at a low dose, we're not really touching the heart rate. We're going to decrease that vascular resistance, increasing our cardiac output, and it's going to have a, a very minimal change on our blood pressure. When we use it at that medium dose, we're going to have a variable effect on our vascular resistance. We're going to increase our cardiac output, and we're going to have a variable effect on blood pressure. And when you use dopamine at a high dose, we got a lot of alpha stimulation. We're going to increase our heart rate our inotropy, and we're going to increase our ectopy, which is really important to think about here in a second. We're going to increase the SVR, increase the cardiac output, and increase the blood pressure. And so I'm going to revert back to what I said. When we use dopamine at a high dose, which is what we're using in the pre-hospital setting for systems that have um, high-dose dopamine for our patients that are experiencing some form of hemodynamic collapse, we have a lot of ectopy. And so that's going to lead us into our next topic here, which is going to be comparing these three medications, and when we can use them all. But it's important to know that dopamine has this pretty profound effect on creating tachyarrhythmias. So when we think about using uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine, when we think about different types of shock, there's some really good literature out there. And like I said before, we want to make sure that we know why these patients are experiencing hemodynamic collapse so that we can better address them. But if we think about cardiogenic shock, those patients are going to need um, vasopressors, um, typically pure vasopressors, um, and norepinephrine is really good at doing that, especially if we have a pump issue. Um, and so we don't want to really use vasopressin as we're getting away um, from that pump treatment, but we're typically going to be using multiple things in conjunction there. Our hemorrhagic shock, we want to make sure that we're using blood products in those patients, because um, that's what they're going to need. When we think about septic shock and we think about our surviving sepsis studies, a lot of them are using norepinephrine uh, and levofed as the first-line medication, and then they're adding uh, lower doses of epinephrine 
Um, they're typically using multiple pressers in what we would call our first line, second line, and third line presser. Um, and then, like I said, in our neurogenic shock, that's really where we're going to see our vasopressin and our phenylephrine because we're not touching the pump and we're really going to affect that vascular tone. And so now what I want to talk about is a few studies that I saw on when we would use and when we would not use uh, dopamine or norepinephrine or epinephrine. And so we really want to think about here the goals that we're trying to achieve. So when we have someone in septic shock, they are going to have a decrease in their preload. They're going to have a variable effect on their cardiac output, but they're going to have a decrease in their SVR. And so we want to make sure that we're addressing preload by giving some fluid. And then we want to address that afterload with their cardiac output. And that's why norepinephrine is really good. And then we want to increase their systemic vascular resistance because it has a decrease. So again, norepinephrine is going to be doing that. And then we're also going to be using um, some other pressors in conjunction with that, according to the surviving sepsis campaign uh, on their recommendations for treating that. In our hypovolemic shock, we have a decrease in our preload. We know that those patients have a loss of volume, whether it be blood um, or, or of some other form of uh, the loss of volume in their body, but more often than not blood. So we want to make sure we're giving them uh, blood and some vasoactive agents. And we want to restore that lost fluid if it's uh, hypovolemia due to dehydration. And in cardiogenic shock, uh, we talked a little bit about neurogenic, but another one that we're seeing is cardiogenic shock. And that's going to be an increase in the preload, a decrease in the cardiac output, um, and some variable changes in our systemic vascular resistance. And so we, when we think about those patients, the AHA is recommending uh, levofed, and the studies that I saw were actually uh, really interesting because it's recommending levofed over dopamine or other pressors because there are fewer arrhythmias that may occur in our patients that are experiencing cardiogenic shock, which is going to lead me to my next point here is when would we use which presser? And so it's a really complex question to answer. But when I talk about it, um, there's some really good literature out there that shows a few different things. In the pre-hospital setting, we are limited to the tools that we have uh, with us. And so if you're a service that doesn't have any pressers, you might just have epinephrine, then you're limited to doing push dose epi or an epi drip. And if you carry epi or dopamine, you have a little bit of a choice there. And so I would really venture you to do your own research. Um, anecdotally, I think that I would do an epi drip over the dopamine. I think that there is uh, nothing that we can't achieve by using an epi drip over the dopamine. We're going to achieve very similar things. And the epi drip is going to come with a few less side effects um, yes, I know that our dopamine in the pre-hospital setting is pre-made. You just have to mix the bag up. Um, and if we want to set up an epidrip, we're going to be talking about a few extra steps. And we'll talk about that at the end of today's episode. And if you are a service that has levofed, dopamine, and epinephrine, I think that levofed is going to be your most versatile medication. And there's a lot of really good literature out there to back that up. And so really, I'm going to challenge you all to do your own research, 
but always keep in the back of your head what goal we are trying to achieve and which medication is going to best help us achieve that goal. So like I said, typically in our patients that are experiencing hemodynamic collapse, our goal is to increase their MAP. But we have multiple things that could do that. So how are we going to act on that? And in the show notes, I'm going to list some really good literature, but we can refer to a lot of those charts that talk about pressors and how we're addressing the SVR or the cardiac output and how we're going to manage the blood pressure that way. So the last thing that I want to leave you with is something that they uh, don't speak a ton on in paramedic school, definitely not something that we're hearing much about in EMT school, but how can we make uh, an epinephrine drip or push dose epinephrine? And so there's a, a lot of ways to skin a cat here, right? But some really simple ways to set up an epinephrine drip. Um, and obviously, our dosing ranges are going to change. We don't have these on a pump. Ideally, we would be using pumps in the pre-hospital setting. And we will be putting these patients on a set rate. But if you don't have a pump, we can set up what we would call a dirty epi drip. And depending on the size of the IV that you have, is going to depend on the flow rate. Obviously, we know that. But if you were to take a full ampule of your cardiac epinephrine and insert that into one liter of saline, you now have a bag that has one microgram per milliliter of epinephrine. And so if you run that wide open through an 18 gauge IV, you would have 20 to 30 milliliters a minute, which would give you 20 to 30 micrograms a minute. So it's a really easy math to do that. And if we were to set up our push dose epinephrine, just a quick reminder here, we would take a flush, a 10 milliliter flush. We would expel one milliliter of saline out of that flush. And we would insert a milliliter of epinephrine from our cardiac ampule of epi, which is are 1 to 10 epi. And so when we do that, we now have 10 micrograms per milliliter of solution of 1 to 100,000 epinephrine, which is our push dose in that syringe. And so we can typically give that in a half a milliliter to 2 milliliters, depending on your protocols and where you work. And that's going to give you 5 to 20 mics every 1 to 5 minutes. And so that's how we're going to set up our push dose epinephrine. So to close today's episode out, I really want to leave you with a few key things. One, we want to have a really great understanding of pathophysiology. It's the basis of all disease processes. If we can understand the patho of a lot of different disease processes, we are going to be better clinicians in the field because we're going to have better recognition of what is going on inside the human body. When we think about patients that are crashing or in extremis, a lot of times there's a lot of stress and we're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? If we can just think about the patho a little bit deeper and research it on our own, we're going to have a better job managing these patients. And that's going to lead me to my next and last point. And it's something that I talked about in the latter half of today's video. But it's please, at all times, no matter what we're doing, if we're talking about a patient that's in extremis or if we're talking about a patient that's just experiencing some nausea, 
let's keep in mind the goals that we are trying to achieve and the safest and most effective way to achieve those goals. So when we think about something, you know, very basic that a lot of patients experience like nausea, we now even have more tools in our tool belt to address it, right? We started to say they could sniff an alcohol swab and and that might take away the nausea. We could give droperidol and that will help with the nausea. We can give Zofran, which has been um, something that we've known for, you know, a long, long time. And so it's up to you as a provider to pick your treatment route. And we should be doing that based off of a really good assessment Asking, you know, the patient if they have any allergies, if one medication they took before is better than the other, and we should be creating the most appropriate and safest treatment plan to address these patients. And that can go on to something as critical as our patients that are experiencing shock. What is the safest way to manage these patients? And so we talked about it a little bit, and I'm going to list a few really awesome case studies in the show notes. But I would urge you to say and take it upon yourself to do your own research because my mindset has recently changed in researching this. But if we are trying to manage our patients that are crashing, what is the goal we're trying to achieve and how can we best achieve that goal? And I would argue that there is more achievement in the use of epinephrine and using an epidrip when we're stimulating receptor sites over our dopamine drip. And there's some really good research out there that shows some different things that happen when we use dopamine, um, some increase in arrhythmias. There's conflicting literature out there on whether dopamine has more mortality when we use it in these patients. But it definitely flipped my thought process up. And that's what medicine is all about. Doing the research to find out the safest option to manage our critical and really manage any patient. We're trying to get the best treatment available in the safest way to manage our patients. And so that's the most important thing from today's episode is sort of gaining a little bit more of an understanding for these receptor sites, touching on some three common pre-hospital pressors when we would use them. And I'm going to link a lot of this literature, all of the literature in my show notes And I would love to hear from you. As always, my email is in the podcast notes. Reach out to me. If you have any questions, if you want to know which medication you've been using or what I would use or what your service has access to, I would love to hear it. As always, guys, make sure we're following our local and state protocols. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you next time.